Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you're like me, you spend lots of time poring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times to hunt will be. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store. Use the promo code TRUTH to save some money and download it today. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things you can actually buy that will help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This is the reason why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation, instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current core setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. Welcome to the Truth From Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Spartan Forge. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 305. Today, I'm joined by my good buddy, Mike Perry, to talk about learning the public land woods through generations of hunting. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine and hope everyone out there got a chance to take advantage of this cold front that blew through this past 
uh, weekend. It came through probably in your neck of the woods at different different times or different dates, uh, depending on on where you live. But for uh, for here in PA, it was blowing through starting kind of on eh, I guess Friday night uh, into Saturday, and then of course Saturday was the gorgeous day um, to be in the deer woods, and then um, Sunday, which we can't hunt here in PA, which really sucks because it was nice and cold. Um, think when I got up, it was like 36 degrees, um, which just feels about perfect, uh, to be out in, out in the deer woods. Unfortunately, I did not get to take advantage of it. I had grand plans of headed to the North piece this past weekend and was ready to rock and roll. But, uh, illness had befallen me, uh, ended up getting sick on like Thursday and, um, it kind of put me down, down for the count. Now, not that I won't hunt through illness, uh, but sometimes depending on whatever I got, whatever type of illness I got going on, I'll have it sometimes accompanied with a, a bad bout of vertigo. I usually get vertigo like once or twice a year um, in a significant kind of way. Usually I'm able to power through it. Um, usually it's just it, it's usually just kind of when I wake up and then kind of dizzy and then it goes away and then I'm fine as long as I'm upright and doing whatever I got to do. But this was one that just wouldn't let go, just dizziness constantly. And so. Friday, whenever I was going to leave to go up to the, uh, up to the North piece, um, it started feeling kind of crappy at jujitsu on Thursday and had to kind of cut my roll short. And then Friday felt like garbage and Saturday and then was supposed to leave Friday night. And I just didn't think that I should be driving, um, you know, a couple hours and not sure how I was going to feel the next day, if it was going to get worse or whatever the case was. And good thing I didn't because it got significantly worse and basically glued my ass to the couch all day Saturday um, trying to avoid the barfer, you know, so that's what I had going on, but feeling like I'm getting back into, uh, rounding back into form now, which is good because I think we're going to have another little bit of a cold front that's and maybe not as significant, uh, but maybe even better because it's getting a little closer to those, those dates that I really like, uh, this upcoming weekend, it looks like we're going to have a little bit of a temp drop going, I think from Friday into Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, and then it's going to kind of hold true, um, or at least, you know, lower temps in terms of the highs all the way through Tuesday. So pretty stoked about that. Um, certainly going to be out this weekend and, uh, might even look to, uh, you know, take a personal day at work or of some sort to try to get a little extra timber time in because it's looking like the weather's going to be choice. Monday's looking a little iffy with some rain, which I like. Uh, I just want to make sure it's not going to be a complete soaker. Like it was, you know, this, the, the weekend prior, like two weeks ago, I guess, where I basically just got soaked for, for no good reason. But with that, we're going to go ahead and just kind of jump straight to things. One thing to kind of make mention though, uh, for everyone listening. So as you guys know, I use the Spartan Forge app. That's the app that I use to kind of do all my, my, uh, all my mapping and all my tracking and stuff like that. Whenever I'm in the timber, it's got, you know, all the information as far as Intel goes in terms of deer predictions, movement predictions, um, weather predictions, forecasts, like all that stuff that you kind of need to be looking at. It has it all in one place and they go a step further in, in terms of predicting deer movement, whether it's, you know, a good movement day, abnormal, normal movement day, whether it's transition area, bedding area, uh, or full range. So, uh, it has some great, great Intel in it, but previously it was all kind of under the, a, a paid kind of model, if you will. And they have a, um, an opportunity now for you to actually get the app and download it and actually use a base kind of model for, um, for free, uh, which is killer. So you get like some killer mapping and just some like of the basic killer, basic features that they have to kind of check the, check the app out before you take the plunge and, 
and go for the full uh, kind of paid premium version. And even at that, it's way less expensive than pretty much any other map app uh, out on the market. So go ahead and uh, check that out. You can either go to SpartanForge.ai and check that out at their website. Uh, there'll be some links there to get to like where you can download it. Or you can just go to wherever you download your iOS or your Android device apps. Head there and just uh, search Spartan Forge, um, and it should come up. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. Have a cool share for you guys today. Have my good buddle, buddy, not buddle, my good buddy, Mike, uh, Michael Perry on this is the, so there's two friends I have named Mike Perry. One is from kind of Western PA and, and one is from the South. I am talking to the Southern Mike Perry today. Um, we had him on not too long ago. I want to say it was maybe a year ago. Uh, and I mean, he killed just an absolute stud last year uh, of, of a whitetail in Alabama. Um, and that's kind of how I, uh, how I ended up meeting him and this most recent, uh, conversation, I just wanted to get Mike back on, but it also just kind of married up nicely with, he actually, uh, put a book out and he sent me, uh, an initial copy of the book. He wrote, you know, something nice in the, in the front of it, which was, you know, which is appreciated. Mike's a good dude. Um, and wanted to have him on just to kind of talk about uh, talk about his book, give him an opportunity to kind of share, you know, what is you know what's in the book, and hopefully some of you guys want to want to check it out. I would definitely check it out. It's a good read. Uh, what I really kind of like about it is a lot of times you get these books that are kind of steeped in tactics and stuff like that, and he certainly has uh, a lot of that in there. But it's bi- it's built around you know different hunts either he, his brother, or his family have done that they learned these lessons on public lands that they've adopted over, over the years. So the cool thing is, is that he and his family all the way back to like his dad, maybe even his grandfather, I forget exactly, but I want to say it's like 50 years worth of hunting the public land that he and his family have hunted in and around the area that he lives. And so he's intimately knowledgeable of it. And that's really kind of how he cut his, his public land teeth. You know, he didn't have you know, he loves podcasts and stuff like that, but he didn't have these types of things whenever he was figuring this stuff out. It was a lot of just getting on deer, um, watching, you know, mature deer for the area, do things. And then, you know, just having to remember that stuff and put it in his notebook and journal and, and go back to it, you know, a year later. And, and those were how he learned his lessons. And so he kind of talks, that's really what the book is about is, you know, almost like an evolution of, you know, how he learned a lot of these lessons that, you know, he's talked about on this podcast and others um, that has shaped how he's hunted. And hopefully it's helping shape some other folks out there, how they, uh, how they hunt. Cause uh, Michael sure, certainly knows how to, uh, how, how, how to get it done. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. Uh, as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today you'll uh, recognize the voice on the other end of this conversation because I have, uh, he's a two-time offender now officially. I have on uh, Mr. Michael Perry from uh, Alabama. What's going on, buddy? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. How's it feel to be a two-time offender? I mean, there's no <laughs> there's no jail time or anything that comes with this. It's just a, well, it's just a badge of honor is all it is. Well, I feel pretty good about that. I was kind of worried about well, if I recognize my voice. I was like, was I talking that bad Southern or what? <laughs> <laughs> right? I didn't think of it that way. It's like it might be the most Southern fellow I've had on the show. No, oh. <laughs> no I've had a couple oh. other... Uh, uh, Southern folks on, uh, actually I had a guy on, I think he, I'm pretty sure, uh, uh, Alabama, uh, Jonathan Moreland. I think he was from Alabama. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, Moreland. Yeah. No, he's from uh, Arkansas. Arkansas. That's right. I knew it was an A. Yeah. He's going to hate me yeah. for saying, he's going to hate me for saying that too. I know how you Southern fellas are about your, uh, where you're, where you're from, your States, you know? Yeah. So yeah, he's a Razorback. So he's an enemy, but no, I'm not just kidding. But he's a, <laughs> he's, a, he's a killer with a, with a recurve, you know, primitive weapon stuff. Uh, yeah, he I've is. Watched, I've watched, I watch some of his stuff and follow him, but yeah, he's a 
very neat guy. But yeah, he's he's an enemy. He's a he's a he's a Razorback. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I like all you Southern guys, man. I I, I was uh I might have been born in in the North. I was uh, oh actually I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. Believe it or not, so I was okay. born in the South. Uh, but my whole family's from PA. So my dad was in the military, and then shortly after I was born, we moved uh we moved back. So. I don't know that I got enough time there for you guys to claim me, and that's okay. I'll I'll, I'll live by care. I got a little I got a little a little southern fire in me though, a little passion, you know, because you guys are you guys are passionate, and that, that maybe that maybe that's the part of the southern I got. How about that? Well, if you was born there and you're credit to the north, trying to help him out a little bit, that's fine. We have right. no problem with that. <laughs> trying to give him a hand, right? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, how you been, man? What's what's new and uh, going on with you? I've been great. I've been busy. You know, of course, y'all know I work 12 hour swings yesterday, and we're trying to get, we're trying to recover from the COVID stuff, getting our plant back to full operation. So I've been busy working and then trying to get some stuff ready for deer hunting. Our our season kicks off this Saturday on, in some special areas. So, mm-hmm. and the area that I like to hunt, I'll start out with, and we'll start off Saturday. So nice. We're looking forward to it. Trying to, I'm, I'm ready, but I'm not ready, of course, like most folks. You know, you're ready to hunt, but you're not got everything on detailed out yet so i'm working on that that's just it man we're going to talk a little bit about that but speaking of being busy the last time uh we we talked was i don't know it was several months ago it might actually be coming up on a year i don't remember the actually the last time that you were on the the podcast a specific date but since then man you you wrote and recently published a book so you've been a little bit more than busy with work what uh what was uh what made you want to write a book where did that come from uh well been working on that since February, but um, you know the history of me a little bit. So I started writing some articles for Alabama Outdoor News Magazine. So like 14 years ago or so, they asked me, and I'd send them in some stuff just to trying to get a feeler for them because I was kind of interested in it a little bit. So I've done that for a while and enjoyed that. It was kind of tough with by the, with the way it works. And then after I killed a couple of good deer, I've had some people ask me about it, you know, because you know I like sharing and promoting public land and stuff like that. So. I was thinking about it, but whenever I killed the state record motor loader there, I kind of felt, well, maybe I got enough street credit or whatever where I could actually feel good about writing a book and maybe it wouldn't be you know, any negative talk about, well, he don't know what he's talking about or whatever. So I kind of feel like maybe I deserve a little bit of credit where I could write one. So I thought I would try it. So I got with a guy named John E. Phillips that's wrote a bunch of books and stuff like that, and he helped me out with the writing part of it. Like I say, we started in February, then I had to get a Got another guy to do the layout where we could uh, upload it up to do the Amazon Kindle stuff. So mm-hmm. I worked on that. So it took a while. We worked hard at it, and then uh, it was a. I don't. It was pretty neat. It's it's a it's a process. It's a lot harder process than kind of what I thought. But it but it was but it was fun. And it was worth it. I just I like promoting public land, and and I wanted to do that because part of it is like we only in Alabama, I don't, Pennsylvania. Y'all are one of the better states about hunting numbers our, mm-hmm. our population now only four percent maybe less than four percent by hunting license wow so um and we're we don't have as much i think we're pushing we don't have a million acres we're pushing seven hundred thousand acres of something like that of public land it's that's huntable it's not a real big number we've lost some over the years so it's uh trying to promote that and try to try to get a little fire on that too um I'm assuming you've got a copy and the picture of it shows a sign. So Yeah, yeah. No, I, got, I appreciate you sending me a copy for everyone out there listening. It's called uh, Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on on uh, on Public Lands. Um so be sure to check uh be sure to check that out. But what I really liked that, that I mean that's an interesting take. Like the the fact that you wanted to promote because a lot of people would 
you know, would would uh, would not want to, right? Like if you have like some places that are really good, you kind of well, keep them close lot, to the I've vest. Tried, and I've caught a lot of crap over it because people, those people hate that I put that picture with that sign that that's behind that deer. And but I've never been shy about it. I've always promoted when I kill something with the, with the the technology, the promotional part of it, the Facebook and all that stuff. I've always posted on there, and these people give me crap for it. I've had people follow me and whatever, but. It's not a. It's not really hurt me yet because there's ways to get around things like that. But but because of the low numbers of hunters, if you don't promote it and we're not using it or whatever, you know, I, it might go away. We've lost enough lands. So I'm I'm not I'm not scared to promote it, and I'm going to promote it. And I think we need to promote it because it's ours. It's our public land, so we need to use it. So yeah, I don't yeah. want to shy away from you know. And I'm not worried about people getting my spots. If they do, that's you know more power to them. So right now, I I mean it's. It's kind of refreshing to hear. Not, I'm not going to say kind of. It is refreshing to hear, you know, someone who's had the, you know, the level of success that you've had because it's it goes back years. It's it's not just that most recent deer that you've killed. I mean, you've killed, you've got just walls of them. You know what I mean? Of of good bucks, mature bucks that you've that you've killed, and that, you know, your focus is less on, you know, when's the next what what's the next big buck I'm going to kill, and I and I and I know you want to kill good mature deer. But that your focus really is how do I get more people to to enjoy this? Because you recognize that the only way this stuff sticks around is if there's enough people that are willing to make noise about it. And if there isn't, if they want to take something from you, well, if you don't have enough, uh, if you don't have enough weight to anchor the, uh, you know, the uh, the tug of war line, you end up losing that tug of war. You know, yeah, just just like me bringing up that four percent, four percent by hunt license or less. We'll see. Over the last couple of years, we've lost a few things. Like one of them was spear hunting. You used to, you could spear hunt in Alabama, and there was a guy that was alive that promoted it. it took him a while to get it passed. And then after he died, and they just kind of slid that under the radar and took it out. So you can't do that. You can't spear hunt anymore. So now you probably won't never be able to get that back. And there's some people mad about it because if you start taking away a little bit at a time, you know, and you let people do it, then they're just going to get more. So. Mm-hmm. And it's an issue, and you know, like I say, if you only got four percent buying hunt last, and who's gonna who's gonna fight for you? So. Yeah, that's that's just it, man. It's a, uh, and that goes with almost anything. You know what I mean? It's like they it, it take just enough to where you don't notice it, or maybe you don't throw a fit about it. But the, the reality is, is the thing that they're willing to take from you today isn't the end game. You know, that's not the only thing they're willing to take. It's they've got a there's a plan. You know, uh, they're, 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 yeah. there's an end game for them, and that's just you know a pawn. A lot of times, yeah. just to check check the temperature. How much of a yep. fit are you going to throw? Maybe I'll go bigger next time. You know, yep. that's that's a lot of time what what happens. You know, I think Pennsylvania we have really we have good hunter numbers. You know, right. um, and even still, I think you know we still struggle at times to to push things through that are that are important to us. You know, and it's uh, I'll give you an example. You know, Sunday hunting, for example, like we we can't hunt Sundays. We get a We've gotten a handful of Sundays the past couple years, including this year. I think is I think this year is the last year that it was passed. So legally, you know, it would have to be renewed or they would have to renegotiate that. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is the last year of that of that yeah. deal. Um, and really, it was a test, right? Because it's part of blue laws that you know were around during who knows when. You know, whenever they banned yeah. liquor and all kinds of stuff. Couldn't sell uh, cars on Sunday for a long time either. That was another one. Um, oh yes. That's kind of like the southern thing. We've we that's kind of wild. I didn't, I, I remember now hearing y'all talk about that. But see, we've in the south that used to be a big thing. No Sunday hunting, blue law, and all that stuff. But we're kind of getting away from that. There's a 
there's a place or two that still don't have like some federal land that you can't hunt on Sundays, but mm-hmm. but now you can buy liquor on Sundays and places. Well, we still have some counties that are dry. We don't can't buy any liquor in certain counties or stuff, but right. that's pretty, that's a, that's a unique thing. So I didn't realize it was that prevalent in the North. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. We can't hunt, can't hunt Sundays here. We've gotten a handful of them. Um, and I'll get the, I'll get the dates and stuff wrong here, but we get a hand, we get one of them like maybe an archery, like the very, I think it's the last Sunday of archery of regular archery season you can hunt. So it's usually around like November 14th. I think there's a day in there for maybe bear. There's a Sunday for a deer rifle season. And there's another Sunday somewhere. I forget exactly what the, what the date is. Um, but we get a handful of them. And, uh, the challenge here is, is that you would think, you know, hunters would want to hunt, right. But you even here get hunters who don't want, Sunday hunting for whatever reason, you know, I'm not here to tell someone that they're right, wrong or whatever the uh, case is. And a lot of times it's rooted in uh, tradition, not wanting to change it just for the sake of it. That's the way it's always been. Uh, um, you know, so, and I'm not smart enough to say one way or the other, what the economic impact is or isn't or whatever, whatever the case is. I look at it through this lens. I like to hunt. The more opportunity I have to hunt, the better, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way I look at it. So I do, uh, I do like Sunday hunting, but that's one of the things there where, even though we have good hunter numbers, we still struggle to push that stuff through because we can't get all on the same page, you know? Uh, yeah, it's tough on the week on the people that weekend hunters just having one day basically to hunt. So it's, uh, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm all about like, you know, church and stuff is fine. If you, if you want to do that, and that's your choice. And now, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in stuff. So I, there's, there's no issue with that, but after church or whatever, I, I believe you should have opportunity. So, yeah, know. totally agree with you, man. But I want to jump back to, uh, uh, to the, to the book here real quick. Cause I want, I'm always curious when people take an endeavor. So I'll take, you know, use me as an example. You know, when I started the podcast, you know, I thought about things about, about deer hunting and doing the podcast that I had in a million years would have never thought of or come across or remembered or whatever the case is. So was there anything as you were writing the book that caught you by surprise or something that you remembered that you know, that maybe you had forgotten or just not thought about in a long time that you were like, oh man, yeah, that's right. I should think about whatever, you know, was there something like that, 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 that happened during the course of writing this? Well, several times on some of the details and the biggest thing that helped me is, is that I've keep everything wrote down in a journal from, oh, from my way back to the eighties. So, so I would be reading through the journal and looking at this stuff and I thought, wow, that is right. So one, uh, one in, particular is is i've had people bring us up to me several times that i actually was hunting thermal hood before you people didn't talk about it because it was a story about crooked foot how i hunted that <laughs> crooked foot here in one of the chapters so things like that is when you get to looking at it and thinking about why well, it is true i didn't even really realize that so there's some unique points in there and stuff like that with it and also the my being with my dad in there because he's passed away is, is reliving some of them specific moments you know doubling up or whatever with him so <laughs> it's all that is, is, is very unique and kind of, you know, heart pulling your heartstrings some while you're doing that. So, but it's, it's, it's well worth it. And, you know, like I said, it took a while, but it, I'm so far I'm, I'm proud of it and stuff like that. So. Yeah. I, I think t- talking about the family aspect of it, I know we were talking right before we started recording and we started talking about it a little bit, but that was the thing that, you know, that kind of caught me and just in full transparency, the people out there that are listening, it's like, I've been able to read about 50 pages of the book before we had a chance to to chat. And then I skimmed a bunch of it to, to kind of get ready to, to have the conversation. But the, uh, the family aspect of it was one of the things that I thought was really, that I thought was really cool because 
I knew that you'd been hunting public land for, for a lot of years, you know, from the last time you and I spoke, but like reading through the book, realizing that it wasn't just you, it was actually you and your family have been hunting public lands in these air in this general area for like 50 some odd years, which is crazy to kind of think about. It's not, it's you, it's your dad, it's your brother. It's like the whole crew. It's like, and you've kind of, kind of came of age on these pieces of public land, right? Right, because back when we first started doing that, the, the deer were just starting to get a decent population recovering from the Great Depression and stuff like that. So it, it was, it was a bunch of stuff has changed since then. We basically grew up as growing up with a deer, basically, you know, having to <laughs> look for days to find a track on some of these places and stuff like that, or even find a deer to hunt. So it was, it was, it was a, I mean, a unique experience. And it's a lot of people don't realize, and if you go back in time on a lot of states, you know, that there wasn't hardly any deer or any deer that, you know, they got wiped out during the depression and stuff. So, so we've had a we've grown a long way and come a long way from from uh, from Roosevelt doing some stuff and then from uh, some other protective laws since then to help you know get these numbers back. And now we got you know you got deer living in people's yards and stuff now where you never even seen a track. So right, I remember like my grandpa and him talking. He got they had forty acres and if it left the track one day, it was probably supper the next day. You know, back then. <laughs> but it's, uh, We've grown a lot and went through a lot of changes, and it's better now. We just got to figure out a way to to promote and protect it. So. Yeah, I think it's interesting that people, you know, take for granted, you know, um, maybe some of the hunting opportunities they have. Just you know, thinking about, you know, there were time there was a time when, you know, deer weren't prevalent, especially in certain areas where it was, you know, like like the situation you're talking about, where they actually had to bring in, you know. Uh, deer from different areas of the country to kind of reintroduce populations and turkeys weren't always as prevalent as they, as they are, you know, and it was, they were almost, if I'm not mistaken, I think they were almost extinct at one point. They were so, the numbers were so low, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of things through conservation dollars, actual hunters dollars that, that, that brought stuff back and, and, and it got them back in good population in some places, better population than it was, you know, ever. So, Mm -hmm. so when, so when you were young growing up, you know, what, like, what was, uh, what was the likelihood of running across a decent deer and what would you maybe call a decent deer back then? Um, and, and the way we was raised and what we did, you know, my father and him and his buddies, they started out, and I kind of give a little history, they started out duck hunting. Well, duck hunting didn't do too good in Alabama. They tried that for a while and then they went to rabbit hunting. They done all right. And somehow somebody come up with deer hunting. So they started deer hunting on public land, and most of them was toting shotguns. And they went through all the changes from shotguns to, uh, I think, a Remington 742 was popular first, like a semi-automatic. You could sling more bullets down to kill some. Then the boats action started taking over. But they were they were all just deer hunting. They they, they chased muzzleloader hunts because that was the only hunt that you could uh, actually shoot any deer. But if you seen uh, like the first deer I buck I killed was a spike, and I, when I seen it coming through the woods, it was like seeing a ghost or like seeing the devil or something like that. Cause you heard about it, but you've never seen it. And I've seen, right. antlers, you know, I just seen the antler shining and I started shaking. I tried to figure out how I was going to get up and shoot it. And no, you can't get up. You got to sit down and get props. And I'd climbed up with a homemade stand where you hugged the tree and pulled up and I had to pull a bucket up and sit on it and stuff like that. And then when I did shoot it and luckily I hit it and killed it, it was just got down there and I was, you know, tearing and just happy hooping and hollering and, whatever crying and it was a spike with about five or six inch spikes and that was you know that was like killing a 12 pointer you know or 200 inch deer or whatever to me because that's 
that's what you heard about. If you see an antler, you shoot it because that's you're not going to see them. It's just they're rare. You know, a buck is a buck. It wasn't. There was no such thing as you know, with ten points, eight points. You know, it was a buck. That's what you were after. A buck. We didn't, we didn't really worry about you know counting points or anything. So, right. so it was it was an amazing time. But it, you know, it's completely changed now. But it was so exciting that part of it because you didn't we didn't know anything about trophy hunting until later on. So. Right. So when when did you when did you start kind of making that that pivot then? you know, to, from, you know, I'm just hunting a buck or for a buck just in general to, right. you know, I have a, I don't want to say a standard, but you're, you're, you're now looking for a mature deer. Like when did, when did that evolution start happening for you? That was the, the biggest switch was when my brother killed at 18 point in which I was already, you know, which I didn't kill my first good buck till I was 31. I was just going to say, because I think I remember reading in the book that was like your first Pope and Young buck was 31, right? Oh, he, he wasn't Pope and Young, but he might have, well, no, he wasn't made Pope and Young as far as, but he was 110, 15 inches. He was a okay. mature deer, was, you know, yep. but he was the first good one. It was a nine point. So it was actually a crooked toe buck. But, you know, so Alabama, Pope and Young buck, back in them days was, that's a big buck now in Alabama, 125 inch deer. So it's, so, but, that, but anyway, but it was, I was 31 and we just, like I say, we just, you were a buck hunting because that was, if you could kill something for food or whatever, it had to be a buck, it had to be horns unless you was, um, uh, motor hunting and they didn't have, at that time, they didn't have that many of them. So to, to be able to harvest something, it had to be a buck or what, no doe hunts or anything until later. Right. So, Cause I remember, re, I, re, I remember you wrote about that because there was a point in time where it's like, if you killed a doe, you know, where you were at, it was like, I mean, you got the. You got the stink. Well, you got the stink eye, right? Uh, yeah, that was a sin for a long time because that's how that's how you had more deer is, is you know does so you didn't kill them so you you wanted more does to produce more bucks you know mm-hmm. you wasn't worried about you know trophy managing anything like that you were worried about doe managing or deer managing so but later on you know Texas was probably in the forefront of you know buck management and stuff like that so later on that started picking up a little bit and they done a few surveys and then. But when my brother killed that 18 point, you know, it was like, holy, that was a whole different level. So I started changing the mindset a little bit. And it took a little while to figure out. And when I killed that crooked foot there, there was the way everything happened with that and how he, way he acted and everything was like, I've got to change, you know, some stuff up because it took forever for me to kill him. But I'm watching him the whole time because of the way he acted, the way he used the woods and the shadows and stuff like that, and the wind and when this. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, it wasn't a deer. He was totally different. So, so I had to change the mindset. And that after he, my brother killed at 18 point, it took me a while. And after I killed, when I finally killed Crooked Foot and some more of them, I started figuring out that I, to quit hunting, you know, the all that pretty good looking sign and stuff like that, hunting the places where more rugged, where a big buck was liable to be hiding and using that versus, you know, hunting a bunch of doe sign and young buck sign and stuff like that. Right. I wasn't worried about it. I just quit quit looking for deer and start looking for mature bucks. You know, I would, if I went a week without seeing a deer, then I knew I was in the right place because, you know, if you're seeing those stuff all the time, most of the time, unless it's a rut, you're in the wrong place. Man, that is like, uh, that is one of the hardest things to, I think for people to kind of uh, comprehend and overcome is that, you know, and even I, I struggle with it because, you know, a lot of my hunts, I won't see a deer, you know, and it starts to weigh on you mentally because you're like, dang, you know, am I, am I even in the right spot? Like, do I, do I even know what I'm doing? Like, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? You start to question yourself a little bit 
but I don't, I can't tell you like, you know, ever, ever since the point, you know, in my hunting journey, when I stopped focusing on seeing deer and just hunted in areas where I was like, man, this is an out of the way spot. Like the people aren't in here. I don't, I see a little bit of sign, but like not a ton. That was whenever I started having my best encounters. Now there wasn't a lot of them, you know, it, but you know, that's where I would end up having the encounters that I, that I wanted to have. But the interesting thing is, is that you kind of picked that up intuitively. Like you started seeing that and piecing stuff together. It's like, I had the advantage of, you know, reading magazines or listening to the podcasts or whatever. So how did you kind of come to that? Like, well, you're, you're in a stand and I guess it's hunting crooked foot and he was just acting differently. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, like, we've we, we seen uh, one thing about him. We had a little history. We, could, we would see his track. He, had, he survived EHD and had a crooked front foot, you know, a wrinkled up foot because he made it through EHD. And he would leave that track like on Creek Crossing or a scrape or something every now and then. So that kind of like, you know, putting it personal then. So. And uh, but it just I completely had to change my mindset because I like I say we didn't have magazines. If you had a magazine, it was outdoor life, and it didn't have anything to do with Alabama. I can tell you that, but it's all (laughs) right. So yeah, you just had to to learn that, like even so, we all or people that hunt a lot of food blocks and stuff like that. It's very rare that you would see a mature buck come out the same place or wherever their nose at. He's always going to come out somewhere different. Or if he did come out, he might just stick his nose out or just circle downwind, whatever. He didn't follow those out there unless there's one in heat and. That was, you know, just a minimum amount of time. Another thing that helped me out is the, tra- is the trail camera part later on is once I started figuring out what I wanted to do, trail cams helped me kind of confirm what I was trying to do is because a trail cam, like right now, I- I'll give it this year for instance, I bought three cell cams last year. And I've had them out since last year. And this year, up until last night, I've only had one buck that showed up on a cell cam. So now I've had like two or three because the, a buck, a mature buck, they just, they're not like other deer. They don't, they don't, do, they don't advertise that they're here, you know, most of the time. So, so if you can get your, if you're looking, if you're expecting to get them on camera all the time, especially down here where I hunt the big woods, I'm like, yeah, that ain't going to happen because they can lay up in the green patch somewhere and then just browse a little bit and then get up at night and then do whatever it is and then be laid back down and stay there all day. So it's just, they're a different animal. You got to think different. And then uh, if you're hunting to see deer, and then another thing is you got to make yourself a goal. Like our goal is for, it's three and a half and older is what we're trying to shoot for. A good, something that's got four on one side and it's leaf wise as ears. And you know, it don't have to be a monster buck, but it's it's just, it's just, you got to make goals and kind of stick with it and, and try to be true to yourself and just stick with your goals. If you're not seeing anything, don't settle, you know, for something because I've got plenty of stories about like, I've told a story before, like one time I was bow hunting, it was in November, I hadn't seen anything much, hadn't shot anything, had three points come out, and I whacked it with the bow, and then 15 minutes later, I'm sitting there watching a six-point come up, and two bigger bucks, and one of them was real big, sparring out there, and here I am, done shot a three-point, and I can't do anything about it, so that, you know, if I'd have held true to, to what I wanted to do, then I would have had the opportunity, so you've got to be able to make that switch and trust yourself, so yeah, stick with it. 
Yeah. Speaking of of trusting yourself, it's it's a a good segue because we were talking a little bit at the beginning before we started recording just about you know you do all like I think you said when we first started recording like you, the season's getting ready to start but you you ain't always ready to get started <laughs> you know it's uh-huh. like I always feel like you're behind right uh-huh. and you know I think a lot of people you know because this will come out in a in a couple of weeks but it'll still be kind of the beginning part of the season like people roll into the season and they'll have you know their best laid plans for the season. They did all their postseason scouting. I'm in this boat, you know, did all the postseason scouting. And mm-hmm. and then you get to the beginning part of your season. And for whatever reason, whether it's Mother Nature just didn't cooperate with you with, you know, uh, you know, an acorn crop for the year, or maybe there's just all of a sudden a bunch of pressure blows into the area that you thought you, you know, had that was secluded. That's, you know, two miles back. All of a sudden you've got, you know, people who are walking through there that you just that you figured out. But for whatever the case, whatever the reason is, you're plan kind of blows up immediately. What, uh, what would you do or what do you do if you kind of ha- make a plan for the year, you know, for the season and from the moment the season started, like the first week, the first hunt or the first weekend or whatever the case is, it completely goes sideways. What do you, what do you do to try to get things back on track? You know, I'll say right now, like this year we're having a lot of talk with people because our season, like I say, starts Saturday in some places. So right now everybody's looking for acres and there's very few to be found. So, that blows up a lot of people's early season, you know, strategy because acorns is, is very minimum where last year you could walk five foot and get 10 gallons, you know? So, mm-hmm. so but that was worst case scenario because you couldn't pick out a tree to hunt. So now, yeah. so now you're doing your little, like we do a bunch of postseason scouting. Most of my plans are made postseason scout. So I look for new areas and then, and then make sure I learn, keep it up with my areas that my real good areas and, you know, keeping everything observed in the postseason, make sure there ain't been any slight changes or anything like that. But now, see, I'm doing spot checks for acorns for my early season stuff, and that right now is that they're not there. So that's one good thing about postseason scouting is you try to learn all your food sources, all your you know your your thinning areas, your cutovers, you know uh, places that've been thinned where the the stuff is growing back after controlled burns and stuff like that that we have down here. So you just got to be aware of all your food sources and, and then slightly adjust. But if you can find a tree that's popping when there's not a bunch, any acorns hardly. You know, you're in the game much, or you can go to persimmons. You know, there's and food plots. If they do them, you know, I'm not a big food plot hunter, but early season when they, you know, they plant them in the rain, hits right them sprouts. You know, deer love hitting them new sprouts and stuff like that. You know, a mature buck might be a little bit tougher, but if there's no acorns or anything, and they they're out doing their patrols, because one thing that's kind of unique about Alabama is, and and it's not. Most of you states up north might not be, be a little different. Is we got we can hunt rut from November first week of November all the way to February in yeah. different parts of the state. So, so we only have to worry about the early season stuff for a few weeks. You know where I'm hunting at. So after that, you start changing up for your pre-rut and stuff. But cameras, like I do everything uh, like a year ahead with my camera stuff. I find new places or places that, that I'm suspecting to be good. And put cameras out, and I'll check them, saying, or I'll put some out in August, or I'll check them in August or July, and change the batteries out. Then I won't check them again until after season. And I kind of see what's happening during that, you know, during the rut and stuff, and certain pinch points and funnels, travels, edges like that. So I'm, so I'm looking for a different area for the next season. So that's how, how I do a lot of my plans and have backup plans. So. Yeah, and I I, I want to get to your trail camera strategy here in a second because it is a little bit different than kind of how I how I do things. And I was reading about it in the in the book, and I thought it was kind of interesting. But before we jump, um, before we jump to that, you were talking about doing you know kind of all your scouting and 
you know, a year in advance, really. Like that's kind of how you kind of plan things and you, and you, uh, you know, you'll go out and kind of pre-scout like your, you know, the spots where you think you might have some acorns dropping or whatever. And, you know, in the postseason, that's when you're learning like all the different food that might be around. So you know what, how you might have to change. Uh, but, I, don't, so, I don't want my deer to be feel pressured any. So I try to do everything I can after season to get all that intel and know where my food sources in them one pre-season or early season. Just do a spot check on the wild oaks that you're aware of because you got them all documented, red oak or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, check your food source and do a minimum, you know, minimum intrusion because, like I said, I don't want any. Now I've got well on them doe hunt period until until later unless because I don't I want the doe to feel safe. I don't I want you know I don't I don't want any pressure at all that, that's applied by me. So I'm yeah. trying to make make it better odds for me. So minimum intrusion. So. Yeah, because that's kind of the spot that I'm in now. Like the past, get my season's been in at this point. While when we're recording this, has been in about about two weeks, and uh, we're going into week number three, and wow. uh, and uh, and so I've had, I've hunted two days. I've hunted three hunts, and really they were more uh, observation hunts where I was going into maybe some new areas I, ha- I haven't hunted before. Well, one of them was uh-huh. de- was well, both of them were actually brand new areas I've never hunted before that I kind of found this past off season hung some cameras and, and it was really to kind of go and check cameras and, and some uh white oaks that I had found, you know, and, and during postseason to see if they were dropping and not a single one of them was dropping anywhere. So that's kind of blew my early season plan up. So now I'm kind of, you know, back to uh kind of what you're talking about where I started making my contingency plan of knowing where, you know, some cuts are and stuff like that where I'm like, all right, it, I'm gonna have to go hunt the edges of these because that's mm-hmm. where that's where the food's gonna be, you know. Um mm-hmm. And of course, you know, cover and so forth. But, you know, uh, I wanted to. Uh, and that's one thing kind of point out. I don't know how y'all think about it up there, but like, you know, a lot of people down here get to thinking that acorns is a actual food source they got, but they don't have to have them. They, they yeah. you know, they, they're browsing on hundreds of different things. They just use them for like candy or, mm-hmm. or whatever, fast food or something like that. Cause they just don't go to the tree and just sit there all night and eat all of them. They browse around. There's certain trees they like, but they just don't keep moving. So you don't have to you kind of change your mindset on that just a little bit because they don't have to have them survive. And, you know, cuts is more important or cutovers, whatever the terminology is for it. You know, mm-hmm. thin areas, you know, browse stuff. Is- right. So how do you, so that's a good, that's a good point. And, and I know you've mentioned this, uh, I'm pretty sure you mentioned this in the book is a feed tree, right? And and so I talked a little bit when I had Jonathan on. We talked a little bit about uh, about a feed tree. And so knowing that you know, obviously deer browse animals. They're you know they're you know they don't just sit down somewhere and gorge themselves. They kind of eat as they're kind of moving moving through. Uh-huh. How do browse trees kind of play into your your overall hunting strategy? Knowing that you know acorns aren't like the end all be all for you necessarily. Well, I prefer like this year. I prefer a year with not as many acorns because they're going to actually move them more. You mm-hmm. know, they're going to actually move more to do to look for stuff like that because there'll be some tree somewhere that's dropping, so they're going to travel around looking, checking because they don't they don't have a complete survey of you know they don't have other deer tell them there's no acorns anywhere. <laughs> so they're so they're going they're going to still get out, and then, then when right. it comes to it, they're going to travel around more, especially when it gets colder because they, they get their keep their body heat up. They're going to have to travel more to browse more, and you know. They're going to kind of leave some areas like yarding areas or wintertime, you know, cold weather areas. You know, most of that's sort of deep cuts and stuff. So, so that, I like it better when there's not as many acorns. So and they will travel more. But, I'm, but most of the time, like early season, I'm, you know, I look for a feed tree and stuff like that with some buck sign. Big, I'm looking for big tracks and big droppings. And 
on my evening hunts, I'm preferring hunting where I'm suspected bedding on little upper elevation stuff, catch them coming down when they're going down there looking for their bottom trees in the bottoms that might be dropping or uh, doing their scrape running and stuff like that. So I, I don't I don't really worry about feed trees as much as a lot of people do. I know some people do, but not me, I don't. So. Hmm. so I was reading a little bit about just kind of how you're, you're um, about your scouting approach. And you talked about a couple different things that I want to kind of, I want to kind of touch on and, you know, get an explanation or just kind of di- dive into it. But mm-hmm. you, you talked about, you know, the spot within the spot and I, you know, and I've kind of talked about this with different, different guys and everyone kind of has a different approach to this. So when you identify that, you know, that spot within a spot, you know, what are you specifically looking for that tells you, you know, you know, that you're at not just like, you didn't just find a good area, but you found the killing spot. What does that look like for you? Uh, I guess uh, you probably know, and a lot of people keep up with me is I, most of my stuff I start out is I start out by walking drainages, creeks and stuff like that. And I try to find a creek crossing or a big track somewhere. Then I start, once I find a big track or big droppings, I will look at the maps and then look at on foot, look at the areas and try to find what I think he's doing, where he's going, and why he's doing it. So our deer down here is in the main place I start out with is less lower deer density, so they travel more. Your doe groups are more spread out, so the bucks will actually travel more than the free run mm-hmm. stuff. So I'm looking for a creek crossing with a buck, big buck track. Most of the time, you're going to hardly even see them crossing because your does will cross in one place, and your bucks are always going to cross downwind somewhere. They're never hardly ever going to cross the same place unless they're just hot on one's tail. So. Mm-hmm. Once I find that creek crossing, well, then I'm looking for something else. I'm looking, well, why did he cross there? So where was he going? So I'm looking for uh, the next thing up, which could be, say, a shelf or some kind of bluff gap, a funnel. I mean, habitat changes, different, say, cedar thickets, pine edges, something that's going to make them go a certain way or or blow down areas on tops or or points that, uh, like when it's cold, the sun hits first and stuff like that, just one one reason why they would be there and why would they be going there at a certain time and when you so i'm trying to find as many of them as i can and then later on i'm putting the cameras on them above them because of way the hill country is where we a lot of our stuff is at, and i like i like hunting something that's got to do with some kind of train changes and stuff like that so i'm putting cameras above and close to them edge and stuff like that and then trying to and I'm always going to put a camera somewhere where i think well i would hunt right here if, if everything plays out and it's what i think it is so I'll put the camera in that spot and then and see what I get. Mm. And a lot of times it's like it's, it could be associated with like a thermal hub, more points going to come into that spot. You know, you can look at the map and start drawing lines from point to point, point to point, just, just from I'll say from five miles out on the map and, and trying to see where all that intersects and what kind of food sources you have around that and how a, how a deer would travel to get to them places. So mm-hmm. It's, it's it's all a bunch of you know different strategies to try to figure all of that, but most of it is boots on the ground. You know, maps can give you some things, but not everything because there's always maps are not always perfect, especially with the hill of country and the steeper stuff about finding little shelves and and little uh, small what we call bluff gaps. I don't know how much that stuff y'all have up there, but it's somewhere where, where deer can make an elevation change. You know, on, on a bluff area or a rough area, they they make that transition. Hmm. It'll be like be like us driving down the interstate and try to get to the other side of the interstate, you got a certain place you got to do that with them. And, and mountainous areas and bluffy areas, they got certain places that they do that. And bucks use 
certain areas versus where those would use just to transition to a different different ridge system. So. Hmm. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting. Like I fa- I think I found as you're kind of talking about it, I'm envisioning a spot that I found scouting this winter, which I actually found a bed there too. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had some intel in that general area from some trail cameras, a couple a couple bucks, and they were always coming from this one particular. Actually, these, there are two spots I did that kind of come to mind, and I found a bed in both in a both both spots, and it was just it was really steep country, and there was just really kind of like one spot where you could get up and down, you know. And yeah. kind of move from like there was a bench essentially it was kind of wrapping around this mountain and off that bench it was really just kind of one spot where you could go up and get up to the to the top and it actually shelved out into like almost like like a rock like uh crop like outface or whatever mm-hmm. and you if you just kind of there's not like a trail or anything like that but if you walk up there all of a sudden as soon as you get up there like boom there's a bed right there on that oh. lip. And, uh, that made me, that made me think of that. And there was a second one that was kind of similar to that, where there was like a big drop off and a big elevation change that that, uh, buck was using. And it was interesting. Cause like I had trail camera data that was always kind of coming from that area at a certain time. It was different bucks using the bed, but they were always coming from the same direction. So this off season, I went and scouted that area and sure enough, you know, I went about 150 yards from my camera. There was a, there was a bed right there, um, uh, using the same, same type of, um, same type of terrain change. But you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you know, uh, you know, how you would set up like in, on an evening, you know, in, in, in a specific area. And I think one thing that folks, you know, get wrong or maybe they mess up or maybe they just forget about it and make a mistake or whatever the case is, is just knowing if a setup that they have is a morning or an evening, you know, particular setup. So how are you determining whether or not something's going to work for you? uh in the morning versus you know maybe better in the evening most of that is is you know is, is the old school what me on you when i was raised up you always hunted in the mornings and then high and the evenings low and it was because of the you know the old folks didn't call it thermals they just they just called it weather wind drifts or whatever so in the mornings i'm i'm, I'm always going to be higher because and it's not specific because of thermals it, but mainly because down here the wind is not predictable so if if you're going to the bottom you know sure deer use use the bottom but if you're down there the wind will be ricochet or swirl it, it's never consistent so you're you're risking you're risking too much to stay down there in the bottom unless you've got a constant wind and, and it's got to be a big enough or wide enough area in the bottom to, to keep it constant. If it's not, if you've got multiple points and stuff like that, which is your preferred places because you want more points and stuff coming together for thermal hubs to actually be more successful or have better odds. So I, I've learned it took me a, it took me a while to figure that out. And there's a story about Kathy hunting one where she, she got busted, but she killed a deer because it, it, they, the wind is too unpredictable in the mornings in the places I hunt. So I stay higher above it and, you know, and, and be set up with a thermal that's not going to affect me. They're going to come off the backside of where I'm set up or, or, or they're going to come straight down in front of me and, and if I'm hunting in the rut and stuff like that, which most of that's going to be that when the deer get to that point, there should be shocked. Most of them is gun hunts, you know. Right. Bow hunting, I'll have to watch it and pay attention to how it is and maybe drop down a little bit hunting below where the thermals is going down for the while. So, But evenings, I'm, I'm always going to be in the bottoms because the bucks to me, and most of my early season success with what bucks I've killed has been in the evenings, bow hunting where they're coming down off of a secondary point or something when they come down to go to water or they're going to, going to make their little jaunts and stuff like that. So my postseason scouting or even some pre-early season or preseason, kind of find a track that's coming down crossing something like that and i'll just i'll try them for 
a hunt or two in the evenings and then I'll move on to a different one because most of the time you get about two shots on them and they figure out you're there or something. So I I, I keep multiple spots like that, you know, in, the, in my mind to, to try. But all my evening hunts, because I want them to be below when the thermals are dropping down, I catch them, they're coming down, so it's easier to get within bow range. And I'm always tight to them, to the mirrors. So. Okay. Yeah, I, I usually kind of play it, you know, you know, very similar. I think it becomes really, uh, I don't want to say obvious, but you see it a lot more like when you're elk hunting because of the the severity of the elevation changes out there and right. severity of the elevation changes out there. And it's like elk hunters live and die by thermals. You know, it's like if you go and you elk hunt and you can't play, you can't play the thermals, it's like you likely never see one, <laughs> you know, because it's just, that's, you know, you're, you're constantly kind of, battling them and they're and they're really strong you know out out there because of the the, the elevation and and, and right. so forth but uh, see so, a, a lot of that stuff you've got you, you've got to learn by the experience actually been there and doing it with the milkweed or whatever you yeah. use i don't get me wrong there's places that i hunt you know bottoms in the mornings but it's places where the, i have a consistent wind or the area is big enough where i can get there and not have to worry about that kind of that type of thermal so the farther south you go or you get away from more of the hill country, there's there's easier ways to hunt bottoms, you know, swamps. I do I love a lot of swamp hunting and stuff like that. So it's you gotta play all that by by learning your areas and stuff like that and then associating with how the thermals would be. You know, you can you can experiment with that postseason to see what them thermals are acting like, you know. Yeah. It could be a little bit different because you don't have as much leaves on because the leaves will affect it to an extent. So Yeah, I think one of the like one of the biggest um things for me just in learning spots that I started doing a couple years ago was just wind mapping areas when I'm scouting, always carrying milkweed with me and like look at the prevailing. And every time I go to a spot, I try to drop milkweed and I try to look at what my prevailing is. So I get a better idea of on a North wind, it'll do this on a South wind, it'll do this. Cause you know, when I started doing that, man, I was really surprised by like how often I might have a prevailing North, but in that spot, every time I'm on a North, I get a South like in that spot, you know, where it actually blows the opposite of what the prevailing is telling me. Right. You know, yeah, you can't hardly ever count on the weather, man. Stuff like that. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And, and another thing like what down here, we only have specific gun hunts, you know, on specific days. And I, I go bore my on by timing and what I've wrote in the book, what days by what trail camera things or what I've seen over the years that I've wrote down. And you, I have to hunt when I'm off, you know, so mm-hmm. I'm going to be hunting regardless. You know, I might have to adjust a little bit when I get there. But I'm not. That's one thing people ask me about moon phases and all that stuff is when I'm off, I could care less how the moon is, you know, so I got to hunt. You only got so many hunting days. So that stuff is never in my mind about about how I'm going to hunt or anything. It's it's just I'm hunting. You know, my wife's going with me, so she's only going to hunt a half a day. And then early season, she's going to pick the evenings. And then during the rut, she's going to hunt the mornings. And I'll go back and hunt evenings and stuff if it's if it's some kind of funky front or something like that. We'll go in later, say, hunt from eight to two or something like that we'll we'll break it up we've had a lot of success doing that so hmm. you know, you've, you've got to hunt when you're off or when you can hunt or if not you know you're you're only way gonna kill them is hunting so it's it, there's no there's a lot of other variables that um you know put deer on their feet besides moon and all that stuff you know people coyotes you know yep. heat or whatever is a bunch of other stuff that on so I just the only the best odds you can put in your favor is just hunting period you know is, is learning your land and and how you do use that land and then being there to hunt. So, yeah, that's a good point. And the number one, the number one strategy for killing mature deer is to hunt, right? <laughs> right? It's just to be, yeah. in, is to be in the woods. 
Right. You can't, and another thing is you can't make them go where you want them to be. You've got to be where they want to be. You yeah. Know, that's another thing. Is there's you know, a couple of things you got to keep in your mind. You know, you can't make them like making it like you're going to do scrapes, you know, stuff like that. You don't do them away from a trail. You got to get it close to a trail or on the trail to make something, you know, mock scrapes, stuff like that. Cause you just, they're not going to come where you want them to most of the time, you know. So you got to, you got to figure out how they travel and use that. You don't want to, you don't want to give them any kind of inkling or sign that you're you're doing something manipulating and knowing you're manipulating them, and then then you're putting it in their hands. And so, yeah. I don't want to do anything like that. So, so you you mentioned that low that low setup that you maybe hunt it once or twice, you know, and then the jig is kind of up at that at that point, likely that something on the yeah, that, that's early that's early season early season. Yeah. So how how many times will you hunt a setup? Like you know, how many consecutive days would you hunt a location? So say you have a spot that you really like you've got the right wind for three the next three days you know would you hunt that location three days in a row or is there do you have kind of like a number in your mind that you're like man i don't really hunt a spot any more than you know twice or whatever the case is from from my years running trail cameras using these creek crossing these junctions and these these funnels and stuff the places that i concentrate on unless i'm a specific buck hunting and that's not i don't do that very often my my odds would be is where I got a chance at more than one buck. So over the years I've learned in these certain funnel areas that where the bucks are traveling going to different doe groups, where I've had, you know, more than three or four bucks that are over one twenty or over three and a half years old use the same area and it might take them because we have a, a bigger range, our deer travel a little bit farther because of the dinner density is a little bit lower, that they'll make it take them three or four days. So I, if I got a place like that and everything's right and I know there's more than one big buck could come to there going checking doe groups, I'll hunt I would hunt it for you know, our most of our longest gun hunts are four days. So I would hunt it I would hunt it all four days, you know. So mm. and I have, you know, so and I've killed before I've killed more than one good buck off the same area in within in a year or so. So it's mm. it you gotta you know, you gotta have the right spot, you know, it's, you can't just do it, you know, if you're hunting a specific buck and you're in so you're down in Fulton or, or whatever you're doing, the, the real close to the bed stuff, you've got a limited time to do that because they'll, they're there more than you are and they'll figure you out quick. So right. they, you got, you got to be able to adjust that. So it's, it, that's a tough deal. I mean, I'm, people that do that, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm proud for them, but that, that's, that's one of the hardest things to do is to do early season down here for me, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I have done it, but it's tougher, but we, but what I've only got a limited amount of time of that. Cause when Halloween hits down here, everything changes. So we, you know, they're starting to do their pre-rutting stuff and making scrapes and, and stuff like that so we can we alternate or I alternate high a little bit. So right. I'm I'm moving into that next stage of it, more more transition areas and stuff like that. So. Right. Now would you so you know, you might so you might hunt the same spot, but would you change would you change trees at least in during different hunts or would you hunt the same exact tree for Four hunts. It just it just depends. I will. I have. Yeah. If yeah. It's if nothing. If I got to cover there and stuff like that, and the wind's right, there's no reason. Because I'm a big stickler, but I always go in and out the same way. You know, mm-hmm. I try to go in where I'm not where I'm not interfering with any kind of other trails. I'm not crossing any trails. I'm not walking through deer. I'm not walking through a food plot. I'm not walking through the middle of a cutover or anything like that. I'm trying to transition to a spot by coming a way that I'm not going to affect them. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I like I'll travel like if I'm going hunt a a, a place where a, a, a thermal hub, whatever, I'm going to try to pop over a, a slight ridge and just be right up, right down the neck, just right below that ridge where I can see three or four of them places coming together, you know, above a creek crossing or above a, any kind of crossing. So I'm not, 
and I'm and if I come in with a headlamp, I'm walking the headlamp till I get to a certain point, then I'm going switching to a little pin light when I shine it on the ground and, and some of the places I'll have leaves like out already to run just being as quiet as I can, you know. Mm-hmm. You still want a little noise, but I'm not really worried about that. But I'm trying to make it where I'm not where they're not knowing I'm hunting them, so I'm going in in and out same ways. I don't I feel like if you're going in different, you know, that depends on what, what kind of bedding stuff you got where they move around bedding in different places. You might transition from a different way, but most of the places I'm hunting like that, I'm not really doing that. I'm hunting transition areas and travel corridors. So the more the I'll, I'll funnel some kind of funnel is making them go through that spot where I, when I get to there, I'm not, I'm not, I've not interfered with anything before I get to it. So, hmm. because, and a lot of them funnel areas I've got to say, a bluff gap or a funnel or blowdowns or something like that that make them, you know, where I've got a better chance or a closer, especially bow hunting, a closer chance at a shot. So it's, they're, you know, it's a more of a pinch. It's something, some kind of natural barrier, a, barrel, a natural barrier, or like you know, like you were talking earlier, a spot within a spot within a spot. You know, the more things you got to change or in an area, and it might be a 100-yard change. You know, the creek cross might be 100 yards, but they come by a bluff gap at 75 yards down there, and then they come up to a pine edge it's, 50 yards up or, you know, or half a mile, whatever it can, it can stretch out for, you know, for a pretty good distance, but it's more than one thing. It makes them travel a certain way when they're doing that. So that's, and all, a lot of that is, you got to take boots on the ground and some of it's map stuff, but it, it's the, or more of the bigger picture stuff. So. Hmm. so we've, we've talked about, we've mentioned thermal hubs a couple of different, a couple of different times during mm-hmm. our chat here. Is there something that, because I've talked to a couple of different people you know, about this and, you know, they, you know, look for certain things, right. Certain ter- terrain features. And, and one guy comes to mind is, uh, Jake Bush. Like he, he will look for like, you know, terrain. He's in, he's in Ohio and mm-hmm. he will look for, you know, topography that kind of almost makes like a C shape. That's, I forget which direction it's faced, but the open end of the C will always face a certain direction. Like he looks for those on the map and like almost without fail, when he finds that certain kind of topography feature, there will be a thermal hub there and he, and he will find a hammer buck bedded not too far from there. Is there anything that you look for when you're looking at maps that you're looking for that kind of show that tell you like, Hey, thermal hub here, you know, aside from like, you know, there's maybe there's multiple drainages dumping into a certain spot. Is there any type of like topographical kind of feature or outline that you're looking for that are things that just that really kind of, you know, trip your trigger or, or you're like, oh, there's going to be a thermal hub there and that's going to be a doozy. Uh, I've, that open sea thing, that's kind of unique. I don't know if I've actually heard that yet, but that's, I mean, that's a unique thing to think about. I'm I'm still, like this thermal hub, I've never heard it called that until the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. I've always looked at it as the more things that come together, the better. So you mm-hmm. start, start with that. And I always look at like in another the area we start out with the, the more mountainous area the upper the upper third or the upper third of a third you know mm-hmm. it's not there's the more stuff to look for the the the, the hemlocks and the uh mountain laurels and different things like that that they use the bed in you're looking for that and then then going out from there as far as how they travel to do that but as far as scent checking and stuff like that i've, I've I'm just now listening to everybody just talk about that stuff, how they use that, but I've never really concentrated on that much. I'm looking for more one thing come more than one thing coming together than looking starting out looking for tracks and mm-hmm. dope bedding and stuff like that during the postseason to try to put all that together and then how they're gonna travel to get to there. So Right. Yeah, but, and that's a lot of the way I kinda I follow the same kind of school of thought as as you. It it's more just like how many kind of intersection points do I have at that and 
to be truthful, it's the area that I hunt, you know, in Eastern PA, it's a lot of flat ground, at least locally. And so, you know, there's not going to be anything, at least for me, it's going to jump out on a map that's going to say, Hey, there's a big thermal hub here. It's usually, you know, most of the, you know, big kind of thermal hubs or primary scrapes that I've come across was just, you know, me putting a lot of boots on the ground and, and checking areas and transition areas where you have an habitat come together and, you know, and creating a, you know, a hard edge of some sort and finding it in those areas. That's a lot of what, you know, how I've, how I've personally found them, um, just for lack, lack of topography, but just figured out, I would ask. I sound like that guy's like, he's, he's hunting specific buck beds. Oh, he is. Yeah. He, so we're doing that here. If I'm looking for buck beds, you know, when I look at say onyx now is is in and uh cow topo and, and maybe hunts I'm not sure, but onyx and cow topo is what I use. Now, if you're looking at places where the lines are the darker color lines, you know, the, the steeper, nastier stuff, and a blood a buck, you know, mature ones especially love to the bed close to bluff stuff where they got a hard back wall where there's no way anything get from behind them. Then they've got, you know, open sight in front of them. And then there's some kind of nasty stuff that are kind of in as far as laurels or blow down and stuff like that. But their, their background is generally, if you got areas like that, is up against close to bluff. We remember my wife found a big old bed this year that he was laying up against a big old pine tree that 10 foot behind it was 70 foot up bluff. So mm-hmm. and he, could, he could see a big valley that down, uh, it probably dropped, say, 175 feet or more in elevation change down to a drainage where if anything come from anywhere, he could he could get out where nobody even knows it was there. So it's it's it, you you know finding that stuff. I like finding all that you know postseason, but I, but specific bed buck hunting, I don't do that that much. So. Yeah, and he does. That's kind of his 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 thing. It's you could almost. Uh-huh. Uh, He's just one of those guys where it's like you can almost set your watch to it opening day. Like, don't be surprised whenever he, he's got a, a hammer on the ground. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. just kind of how uh, that's his, that's his game. And he's and he's really good at it. Um, it's, it's, down here, you know, we don't have, you know, we got some big bucks as far as, you know, if if I screw up like that big buck I killed last year, if I, if I knew, I knew about where he was dead now, but if I went in there and screwed him up, that was it. I was done. That was my only big, big buck, you know, mm-hmm. my chance of being the state record holder was gone. So I had to play it by, from what camera stuff told me about what days he was daylighting and just, and would just try to intercept him. And it worked out because, and you know, cameras have taught me that over, over, over the years as there's here, the, once they start squirrel hunting and stuff like that, yeah, bucks figure that out and they're, they're, they they they're flipping a the light switch and they're they're going, they're going to travel different you know they're going they're going to adjust how they're moving in daylight if they move any in daylight so it's it makes it hard but so I have to be very careful if I've got big bucks on camera about how I do it because I don't I'm, I don't want to blow it so most of the time in my real good areas I'm not I'm not targeting early early season I'm targeting something outside of them areas hmm. that I find you know so right it, I, you have to be real careful because like I say that we don't have you know I can't find seven or eight or ten or you know whatever monster bucks to hunt and if i blow one i'm, I'm not worried about it I, I can't do that and i've only got limited days to hunt so it, it's it's harder for me to do that so. yeah no I, I i totally hear you i'm a, i'm often in, in the same boat where it's you know i'm usually looking for you know a handful of of decent bucks you know what i mean right. and, and every now and then i'll get you know at least locally i'll get one that is a, is a looker that was kind of the case last year um, that buck hasn't showed back up, so I don't know if he's dead or 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 what or what the deal is. Uh, but um, 
Yeah, yeah, we're looking for a three and a half year old and older. You know, we're not specifically targeting, you know, I'm not targeting seven year olds or whatever. Some people are shooting for nowadays or, or a 180 and above or whatever. I'm not, I've not got to that point yet, and I hope I don't really get to that point because I enjoy the other the other aspect. Of- <laughs> I, I always say I'll never kill a great buck because if I see a good one, I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah. that's yeah. that's that's kind of my uh, that's yeah. kind of my game. But uh, man, I want to ask you. You know, we've mentioned you've mentioned your wife a couple times. You know, in, in terms of just like you know how you know she'll hunt with you and you know does scouting mm-hmm. with you and stuff like that. And I know you have a section in the book. We talk about realizing that she was your your best hunting partner or something to that uh, that effect. Right. How uh, can you kind of I just explain you know that that relationship of of hunting with your wife and and how important that is and and, and things of that nature because I think like for me for example my wife doesn't hunt and a lot of guys right. are probably in a similar boat right and so I can only imagine um, you know but how 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 key is she uh to your to how you hunt and, and the success that you guys have together well if i didn't have her i wouldn't be as successful as i am now because like she was with me that the day i killed the monster when she's been there with me on, on on several of them it's just the hard part about having like i've had several men hunting buddies over the year but the way i work and the way you know it's, it's unique to where everybody else works so finding somebody because it, it's a process of of trying to figure out how you want to hunt where it works for you. And, and some people don't like hunting the way I do. And, and they're because they want to see more deer, like we was talking about earlier, they want, mm-hmm. they're, if they're not seeing anything, they, they get too bored with it quick where I, you know, it don't bother me not to see a deer. You know, I'm waiting on, you know, the, the three seconds, you know, that it takes to kill a big one. So right. you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that specific time. I don't want them to sit there and watch eight hours worth of does and stuff running around. So, but uh, her, her, she, she trusts me. She's got a detailed eye about, about stuff like that and uh she just and she enjoys seeing anything she'll take pictures of whatever you know and and she's had her chance at monster books she's just she has not got uh you know you got because in life when you're hunting and stuff like that you start out you know, go through stages so you gotta you know work yourself through some things and she got tore up or didn't trust what her equipment or her ability to shoot her equipment because she had a 190 something one time that come by her you know for 30 minutes messing around with those breeding does and making scrapes and stuff like that and she had a crossbow that she just had got just wasn't real comfortable with it yet and just was passed up you know decent shots waiting on the perfect shot and um and i tried to teach her you know you get real familiar with equipment and the first shot you get you know is to take it don't wait for the perfect because you might not ever get it so you just got to trust yourself and your equipment and then you know buckle down to make a shot so and she's but she enjoys it she she loves it she she loves getting out in the woods and just her camping part that we do. And she's, you know, her, she grew up not hunting. Her dad was a, like a bird hunter. He loved quail hunting and stuff like that. She didn't know anything about deer hunting until we got together. And so, <laughs> nope. So now that our son is you know, out, out of the house, stuff like that, we have more time to do it. And she's, she's locking down pretty good. So I, I expect her to, you know, kill a, you know, a whopper here one of the days. She's, right now she's the only one in the family that has killed a, a buck with, like a, she's killed a buck with a regular bow crossbow a motor loader and a rifle so she's, and that's ahead of me i've not killed one with a crossbow so she's she's very versatile now so she's a, right. she's a perfectionist <laughs> so, so look out so. that's awesome that's awesome yeah because i mean it's uh it's it's key to have a good hunting buddy man that's mm-hmm. and it's even and it's even better whenever it's uh when it's your significant other you know it's uh, uh you know because yeah. it's you know i hunt with my buddy chad a lot you know we travel together a good a good bit and uh, 
you know, I got a lot of good, good friends and, you know, but he and I work well together. Like we like to hunt mm-hmm. the same way. You know, we like to, we embrace the hard parts of the hunt. We actually just, sometimes I think it makes us enjoy the hunt even more whenever they're, when they're hard, right. you know, and it, it, when you find that person that you can spend that like time with like that, and you'd like to do things the same way. It's like, you just hold on to that person, whether right. it's your wife or whether it's just a good buddy. Cause uh, they, you know, they don't good hunting buddies just don't drop into your lap every, you know, every day necessarily. Right. So. And, and they're all like unique. Like she's got different ways. She looks at things versus I do and different and she can hear better, but she looks at, you know, she looks at doing, you know, completely the sign, complete difference. And that's the, the unique perspective, but she does not want to like hunt together. She, she don't really hardly like doing that. You know, mm-hmm. she likes being by herself and yeah. she's got where places where I can just let her go to her tree by herself and stuff like that. And so we've been out to Wyoming several times and she loves, you know, after we get through hunting, whatever, just going out and, looking for sheds or just checking the train out in the different areas out where a lot of people don't like doing that. She'll, we'll walk, she'll walk for hours, you know, just looking at stuff because it, it's, a, it's a unique perspective for her. And, you know, she's not done a whole lot of traveling like that until we got married 30 years ago now, so I mean, 31 years now. So Nice. And, uh, but it, it's just, you know, we're now in our life, we've, we've been able to do a little bit more of that stuff, but she, she really enjoys it. She's, she's bear hunting and, and been on maybe with the moose hunt and stuff like that. So she's she's actually got the biggest bear in the house. She killed a four hundred and four pounder with a crossbow in New Brunswick. So it's That's awesome. Yeah. So she's and she's done that with that crossbow. And now since she killed that with a crossbow, any buckets, you know, steps in front of her is in trouble because she's got confidence. She's got yeah, that. yeah. She's <laughs> but, feeling it now. <laughs> yeah, so, so look out. So. That's that's right, man. So I want to talk to you real quick about we've we talked about trail cameras a couple times here. And so I just want to get a sense of how specifically you're using them. Cause it sounds to me like the one you were talking about, you know, when you have a good buck on camera, you know, you'll know an area, you know, where there's a good buck and maybe one he's going to use that area. I mean, are you, are you targeting specific dates kind of based off a of trail camera, like Intel right. or how are you kind of using those? I use that. The, like I go out, you know, do my postseason count, looking for different funnel areas and stuff like that, places that I would actually hunt. I look at it how if I can't hunt there, I don't want to put a camera there. So mm-hmm. I'll find a, a unique funnel or whatever, and I'll put a camera there, and then I want to check it during the season until you know, after the season, and I'll look and see what comes through. And, and I always look at them dates because the best picture of a deer to have or a buck to have is a hard horn picture, mm-hmm. you know. If you get a mature buck with a hard horn, I mean, you're in the game because he's there for a reason. Right. So, you know, velvet pictures, they can move a little bit, but over the last couple of years, I've kind of learned, I've talked to another guy in Iowa about a deer when a big buck gets real mature, if he finds him a, a place and uh, I've noticed on camera that he likes, he'll stay there velvet and hard horn. And I've had a couple of bucks over the last two or three years that, that's like that. So, hmm. but a hard horn picture of a mature buck, you're in the game. So I'm looking for that and I'm looking for the dates and, and if it's more than one buck, you know, coming through, that's I mean, that's go because you know your your odds are better. So I'm looking for them spots. But so I run a bunch of I've say Browning. I think I like strike porch Browns. They're not real pricey, and if somebody steals them, I deal with it too bad. You know, a lot of people are going with the cheaper cameras, but I don't. I like them a little bit better than I said the Tashco because I'm not mm-hmm. because a lot of people they go. You know, some of them are some of them good, and some of them ain't. But I just I don't want to. I want a decent camera. To, because that intel is gold, you know. So yeah. I've got a few sale cams. I'm not, I don't know if I'm in on that game or not yet. So it's, that's, uh, I'm, I don't know. If they outlawed them, it wouldn't bother me a bit. So it's, right. it's it, you know, you think you're expecting something with them, and I'm not really getting that what I'm, 
what, what everybody's house has by them anyway. So yes, the way I use mine, the way I use my cell cameras is I, you know, like you were talking about earlier, limited time to hunt and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? And so what it saves me on is I put those into places where I don't want to intrude. Like I don't even want to go in and check the camera, you know, Mm -hmm. and it'll be a spot like, say, for example, like a primary scrape area or like a thermal hub area where I know there's a hammer scrape. And I know three days in the middle of October before actual pre-rut, like I know that there's a hot doe in this area that comes in early. And I just mm-hmm. need to wait to get like the intel that like a couple does and a couple bucks hit that scrape. All of a sudden I know, all right, the three day window has just opened. I got three days now to make it happen. Uh, you know, I use it for that. And then I don't ever go in like it, it stays there all year round, watches mm-hmm. that scrape, like, and that's it. And I just, I let it tell me when the party's about to kick off and then I'll, and then I'll plan my hunts around those couple dates. You know, that's mm-hmm. essentially how I use it that way anything that's hard to reach or takes me a long time to hike or is really intrusive that the only time I want to hike into that spot is when I want, when I plan to hunt it, those are the spots that I use them for essentially. Uh, I, the ones I got, you know, like they'll, I got them on like a, like a burst, you know, a tech mm-hmm. power picture or whatever. And they'll, they'll send me, they're supposed to send me one out of them. But I checked one, the battery was going low. And I, when I went through the car looking at those pictures of deer that it didn't send me a picture of, and, I th- and I'm trying to figure out why. So that's kind of, Mm. I, I'm not all in on that part of it. If, there, if there's a reason why the signal's not good enough and it's not sending, you know, one of them set all the time or what, so I'm right. It's still a learning process for me. We don't have real good, good signal areas on some of them places where I actually would want one to be at, you know, for that. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm exactly like you. I don't want to mess with them. I don't. I, it's very rare of me to check one during the season unless I'm hunting right there close to it. So I don't, yep. because I, like I say, I don't want the deer knowing I'm hunting if I can. So I don't, I don't mess with them. I, don't, I like the least intrusion. So, yep. Now, are there any, uh, do you have any free, favorite dates that you like that? So, based on all the, you know, truck camera data that you've had and all the years that you've been hunting, do you have a, a handful of dates that you really kind of fancy? If I had to pick one day, it would be December 2nd. Really? Because, yeah, it was just because I've, I've killed a 158 on December 2nd, another 10 point, and maybe another buck, and I've heard more grunting or chasing or something like that on that specific date by my by my journal. Mm. You know, and there's other dates, you know, that's if I had to pick a two-week time frame, whatever it's going to be from, say, November 20-something to December 5th or something like that in this, mm. this prime area, then the different, different public land that we hunt, it will be different time frames. But this main place where we have the best chance of killing a, a big old buck is, if I had to pick a day, it would be December second. But you know, hmm. so but that's just me. Now, in that general area, wouldn't when does your rut come in? Is that one of those areas of Alabama that has a like a little it's, later rut? Yeah, no, it's actually the early rut. It's like November thirteenth. But okay, I was I was talking to somebody about that before. Is that during that time frame, most of the time it's kind of like a lull. If you're not exactly where the where the older does are at, the first ones that come in heat, everything kind of gets quiet. You don't see that much you know, movement as far as buck movement and stuff. But later on, like when the when the two year old does, whatever it is, starts coming in the heat, they start traveling more, buck starts moving more. So it's mm-hmm. it's always a little bit later on. It's kind of a lull to, at the beginning of the rut. But November thirteenth is is the initial conception dates on this one area. So nice. so Heck yeah, man. Well, I've been uh I've been bending your ear here for a little over an hour and want to be uh, sensitive to your time. So I appreciate you coming <laughs> on, buddy. Before I let you go though, I want you to let people know where they can find the book, where they can buy it, and uh where they can yeah. check out things you have going on. Right now it's it's on Amazon and uh you know look up Michael Perry and it's the the style of the book is Deer Hunting Secrets to Take Mature Bucks on Public Land. So uh 
Amazon. You can you can look me up on Facebook or Instagram and send me a message. And if you wanted me to send one a certain way specific, I can try to do that for you. And then uh, we've got a little YouTube channel. That's Wild Hunting. We're doing some stuff, some of my scouting tactics and some other things. So you can look it up on that. But uh, if you if you want personal message me, personal message me. I can you know I talk to everybody I can and love love talking to people, especially from different parts of the you know country because. Uh, I listen to podcasts from all over the place, you know, Troy Pottinger and just everybody's got unique, you know, tactics that I like listening to because I, I instill some of that in some of my ways that I hunt. So it's, you know, everybody's got to find their own little niche to hunt. So, so I, I highly advise and appreciate all this information that y'all got out there and just, you know, listen to the podcast, you know, find books, you know, there's not a, you know, you don't hear about much about books nowadays, but, you know, I, I read a few books every now and then, so. Yeah, so, but uh, try to help me out and buy a book because it, you know, you know, and uh, it helps promote the public land and stuff like that. So I appreciate it. Yeah, everyone should go out and check it out. Yeah, hop on Amazon, Michael Perry: Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Land, buddy. Pr- I appreciate you coming on, talking about the book. I appreciate you coming on, just chatting with me, and uh, I always appreciate when we share some uh, text messages or Facebook uh, Facebook messages. You are uh, you are one of the good ones, sir, and uh, and I, and I just appreciate your uh, spending some time with you. I appreciate you, Clint, and I appreciate everything you do, buddy. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.